Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. I aim to have conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev, and this song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Tom Zinzer, who spoke with me from his home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm really excited about being able to bring you this conversation, as Tom's work is incredibly important. Tom is a clinical psychologist who, in 1987, was specializing in hypnosis and the treatment of dissociative disorders when he met Catherine McKee, who channeled a spirit entity named Jarrett. Tom struck up a long-term working relationship with Jarrett, who, through Catherine, assisted him in his clinical work on cases where Tom by himself was getting stuck. The result of this collaboration was an approach to healing which Tom called soul-centered healing. Tom has documented the story of this collaboration and the healing methods that emerged from it in his book, Soul-Centered Healing, A Psychologist's Extraordinary Journey into the Realms of Subpersonalities, Spirits and Past Lives. What so excites me about Tom's work is that he has developed a system that closely corresponds to my growing understanding of the complexity of consciousness through my own studies and personal healing. The power of Tom's work is that he has been able to test and document this system through thousands of hours of clinical work and verifiable results with clients. This understanding includes the conventional psychological aspects of repressed parts of ourselves, the impact of past life influences, including from repressed parts from those past lives, and intrusive energies by extra-physical consciousnesses. Tom's work is full of leading-edge distinctions and understandings, and I hope you appreciate it as much as I do. Past life that, uh, and past life attachments, that is uh, a phenomenon that I'm very familiar with because it has happened with a number of clients I've worked with. Yeah. And if I were to describe it, it would be that um, I am working with a person's past life subpersonalities for healing. And then I may find out that there is a spirit present who, from that lifetime, when that person died, did not go to the light and remained earthbound. So when my client reincarnated into their present personality, 
things occurred which allowed this spirit from a past life to connect to that energy of my client, which it had related to or connected to in that past lifetime. So if you had a uh, uh, past life um, male who had been married to this spirit, a woman, she may connect with this person again at that level. That spirit may not be aware of the person's present life, but in a sense they are re-engaging in that past life reality. And I guess they're kind of connecting with them at the level of what you might call the soul, right? So they might not see them as the person that they are right now, but they recognize them from that underlying uh, sense of identity. Exactly. If, if we think about, and I know you do, think about things in terms of energies, that subpersonality is an energy that that spirit recognized and connected to, uh, and that's where they will relate. She, that spirit will relate to my client as if they were still in that past lifetime. Mm. I, I myself think about it in terms of psychic and spirit levels. Um, you know, language here, uh, we don't have a common language. So we always have to kind of sort through our language. Yeah. And um, the terms that I used use uh, most frequently are psychic, uh, spiritual, and astral. And I look at these uh, earthbound spirits as existing in that astral realm, and that we too can access that astral realm. So those are the three terms I use, but. Well, I, I think for the benefit of the, um, of the, of the listeners um, who haven't, uh, you know, shared my um, uh, enthusiasm in, uh, in just reading your book and I'm just right in the middle of it. Right. So I guess I'd like to start with uh, saying that I think the thing that so excited me about your book is that it's, touched on and it um, named and gave context for uh, the, the rich variety of our inner experience in ways that I haven't actually found quite like that before. Um, you know, the frameworks that I've operated in, I, 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 I really relate to uh, spirit intrusion or extra physical intrusion or presences. Uh, in my main paradigm that I've been working with, which is through conscienciology, and then through psychological work, I've really related to psychic parts, our own internal parts. But I've actually not come across someone who's put it all together in the way you have. And so that's, I guess I would like to flow through those steps, you know, that, that you found in your work um, over time. You mean in terms of how I moved into it or what I kind of the big picture I learned from Jared and then kind of confirmed clinically. Yeah, yeah. So so what I would like to do in this talk is really go through all those stages that you learned from Jared um, and that you just touched on, I think, when you mentioned the psychic and the astral. And what was the third term that you used? The spiritual. The spiritual, yeah. The spiritual. Um, but, um, My work. But, but pr probably also, again, for the benefit of people listening, it would be useful to just, 
before we dive into what you learned and how you how 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 you have come to understand all that, um, it really quite briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but just to explain the context that you were started your professional life as a clinical hypnotherapist, and you then met Jarrett, and maybe just briefly um, set out that so people understand where you're coming from. Well, I worked at that time as a clinical psychologist specializing in hypnotherapy okay. and basically with clients uh, who have suffered a dissociative disorder. Uh, it could have been from some accidental trauma, but most uh, frequently it was uh, being abused as children or early adolescents. And as I began to work more and more in that area, I also worked with what people then called multiple personality disorder. Today it's called dissociative identity disorder. And that is where I met subpersonalities or alter personalities who were quite obviously distinct from my clients presenting personality. So it's as if you are talking to two different people, three different people, four different people. That was my experience with working with different levels of consciousness. In that work, however, and I worked with subpersonalities with regular clients as well as the multiple personality clients. That is pretty well known in clinical practice, the idea of subpersonalities, that we all have subpersonalities. The problem was that working with clients, I would get very close to working with their trauma. And then things would begin to get blocked. This happened so much, I became quite frustrated. I felt like my clients weren't benefiting. I wasn't getting where I thought we should get. And I, I then met this woman who channeled a spirit entity named Jared. And she offered me a session with Jared. I had never thought about having a meeting with a channel or a psychic, but I said yes. I met with her. I uh, communicated to Jared through automatic writing. And in that, I asked him clinical questions, since that's what I was interested in. That's when I was caught up in, Jared gave me information. And some of that information involved a client I was working with at that time. And he said that I would find that that client had a spirit attached to him. And in the next session with that client, I began to ask my questions in such a way that a separate entity might be present. And then I began to get rational responses to my questions. Up to this point, I had been going around in circles with this fellow. So that hit me very strongly. I was communicating with someone here. So I asked Catherine, this, that's the channel, I asked her to do another session a month later. I got more information from Jared. I took it back to clients. That too was working. So after about four months, 
I talked with Catherine and we made an agreement, Jared, Catherine, and myself, to collaborate together for healing. And that's how my collaboration with Jared began. And I worked with him for 15 years. Catherine and I met each week. I had a list of my questions on my legal pad from my client sessions, as well as metaphysical questions. I would meet with Jared for an hour. By that time, Catherine was channeling verbally. So I could communicate to Jared verbally, and our sessions just took off. I mean, verbal communication is so much quicker than than writing. Sure. um, So that's how it began. And so for 15 years, I probably have 700, about 700 recorded sessions with Jared. And in all of that 15 years, we explored a, a lot of phenomena. Uh, I've worked with hundreds of clients over that time and um, considered that I developed what I consider a scientific method, meaning I would get information from Jared about the client. I would not tell that information to the client when I worked with them. We would work in the hypnosis, in the trance. I would formulate my questions and my direction based on Jared's information because I wanted to see if it proved out without my client understanding what I was doing. And that's the way I worked for 15 years. They never knew ahead of time what information I had. And the question was whether it was going to work. I would give them the information regarding their case once we dealt with everything Jared had had communicated, just so they understood what I had received, what I worked with. So you explained so, to your clients, did all your clients, were all your clients that you worked with like that aware that you had information, that you obtained information through a medium? Yes, they gave me permission to talk with Jared, but not needing to share that with them ahead of time. Right. So they, they didn't know when I was going to talk with Jared about their case. I had many cases. Um, but they gave me general permission to talk with Jared when I felt it would be beneficial or might be helpful. Did you ever have a client who said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with spirits? Um, yes, maybe they they may not have said it quite that clearly, (laughs) but, um, it, it, it freaked a couple of them out. Uh, there were also people who were what I would call fundamentalist Christians. And I basically talked to them ahead of time that I thought that this probably would not be appropriate for them. Right. I I felt it would be too much of a challenge to their paradigm of reality. And that's not what they were seeking. Yeah. Um, So there were a few cases like that. Yeah. But it got to be that the people that came to me were referred to me. They knew what I did. They wanted to do that. And so it kind of became a mute question. Yeah. And um, this is just something that intrigued me as I was reading. Uh, uh, was Catherine, was that essentially a remunerated arrangement? Is this like she was part of your clinical team? Um, so you, you obviously got paid, you know, was that, uh, 
Was her role part of that? The the arrangement for our collaboration is that I would pay her a yeah. fee per session. Yeah. So for each session, then she received a payment. Yeah. So just like going to uh, medium generally. Yeah. 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 Uh, but her agreement, Jared's agreement and mine is this is this is about healing. That was our focus. I did ask a lot of metaphysical questions of Jared. There were questions uh, he would not uh, give very much information about. He appeared to be operating with certain kind of laws about what kind of information could be shared. Mm. But he was especially sensitive to giving any information that got too far ahead of my client. Yeah. He he basically saw my client as absolutely free will souls, free choice, and felt or knew that giving certain information ahead of time would affect that soul's free choice. It's kind of like stacking the deck on someone. So he was very careful not to get far ahead of the client in order to kind of influence what they were choosing, how mm. they were thinking. And I appreciated that a lot. I trusted his judgment when I would ask a question and he would say, um, we can't go there right now. Uh, it was almost saying once you, once you work to that level, then we can get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So that Jared was reading the soul. He could read my client's soul. Um, which I could not. <laughs> so when he was giving me information, I had to consider he was coming from a lot bigger picture mm. than he could give me. But when I, when I met with Jared, I would give him a lot of clinical questions. I would say to him, you know, Jared, John Smith and I were working at this point, and then I got this subpersonality, and all of a sudden he just quit communicating with me. Can you see, Jared, what happened there? So I would give him kind of a target or a focus to look at, and then he would give me information. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, like uh, in, as far as evidence goes, um, it's, a, it's a very compelling piece of work that, that you've experienced in terms of having, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of clinical cases um, that uh, – made significant often uh, I gather right made significant improvements based on this advice that you were given well it it wasn't the advice was about our clinical healing method and the method was in identifying a client's subpersonalities that were in pain had been traumatized and these subpersonalities, and this is so important, um, these subpersonalities are created to protect us. And they are created primarily in childhood and early adolescence, before the ego's personality and the, and the psychological defenses are firmly established. That's when a child and early adolescent are very vulnerable. 
And if something occurs that is traumatic, it doesn't have to be physical, emotional, psychological, yeah. uh, but something like abuse for sure. When a child could no longer tolerate what was happening, then it could dissociate. And a subpersonality created who would take over in that moment and do whatever it needed or could do to survive. That was its job, just to survive this. Once the trauma, once the, the threat subsided, it's as if that personality moved to the unconscious and the core personality was back in charge. The core personality, that child, that person grows up, they may remember none of this. They may not have any idea of these subpersonalities. So my work was to identify these subpersonalities, help them to share what had happened, what they were holding inside them. And then re once they shared that, be able to release whatever it was, the pain, the hurt, the fear, they could release that. And then the subpersonality could integrate in the present with my client. And it's hard to explain, and Jared explained it to me, they still, the subpersonality still exists as an individual, but it, but it has now found a fully integrated place with the conscious self. So um, the, the, it, it is both one and, and, uh, and still separate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think yeah. you've got a you've got a graph in your book, which, if I remember rightly, um, you know, you've got one image where these subpersonalities are kind of kind of hidden underneath or outside of the the realm of consciousness, and yes. then occasionally they'll dip in and influence us in this lifetime. And then yeah. the, the way you picture integration from memory is it's like they become if the consciousness is a circle, then the subpersonality kind of becomes permanently attached to the outside and so it kind of grows the the self grows that's exactly that's exactly jared's description he said it expands the consciousness mm. and he said it's as if those subpersonalities who integrate are coming up behind you and can look out now through your eyes into the present and know where they're at uh, so they're all kind of being able to look in the present not that they always are looking but they have that capacity now. They're aware of the present. Most subpersonalities, when they are created and then go to the unconscious, they often are not aware of present time. They often are not aware of the present personality anymore. They're not aware the time has passed, that the, my client is now 40 years old and not 13. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the problem. They're still living like a 13-year-old, and they're reacting like they're still in trauma. And my 40-year-old client doesn't understand what's going on here when he has this particular reaction to something. Mm. Do you, do you so want to give an example um, for people how that plays out? Um, um, well, let, let's say that a, a three-year-old goes through an experience of rejection by a parent. The parent just loses their temper or, or they've had a bad day, but it's a very rejecting experience for the child, the three-year-old. 
that three-year-old may be so hurt and threatened that it dissociates. And then in its place is a three-year-old that's created who will tolerate in some way what's happening. It may be crying. It may run off into its room. It may do a temper. It depends on what the child needs to survive. Mm. So that three-year-old then, once the, uh, the core person, the, the three-year-old personality is back into consciousness, the three-year-old subpersonality moves to the unconscious. If, if two years later, three years later, a parent begins to also become rejecting again in that way, kind of that sort of feeling, or a teacher becomes rejecting in that way, that subpersonality can be triggered because, in a sense, the same key is playing there. Yeah. It's hitting that three-year-old's kind of tune. That three-year-old then blends into consciousness and begins to react just like it did with mom back at three years old. And, and it may act out then in front of the teacher or it may act out again in front of the parent uh, as it did at three years old. Um, so that three-year-old can remain at that unconscious level and periodically be triggered if its issue is happening in, in the present reality again. Um, I, I guess that's the easiest way to explain it. These subpersonalities then can be triggered depending on what happens later in one's life. Yeah. If, if you can work with them, release them, and integrate them, that issue is no longer there to be triggered. That part is now living in the present, integrated mm. with itself. So that, that's kind of the psychological part that we started with with Jerry. Yeah. The personalities. And, and even that can be quite a paradigm shift, I think, for a lot of us because we are so um, acculturated to see ourselves as a singular entity and this idea of you know, there being multiple parts of us is very quickly associated with some sort of pathology rather than just a natural form of, that's how it seems to be how humans develop, that these subpersonalities form. So even just yes. having that articulated is quite a profound. I, I agree. Um, the, the multiple personality, and I still call it that because that's the term I use then, but uh, the dissociative identity personality, um, it is the extreme of this. Yeah. Their subpersonalities are created, and they, they are, there is such trauma, such threat involved, that the subpersonality actually takes over the conscious position and stays there. And it develops its own awareness, and that's why it can take over during that person's life uh, and, in a sense, um, become the core personality for a while and act out, and, the, and the, the original personality is not aware. They have, when they come back, they are missing time, which is one of the primary diagnostic uh, uh, factors for diagnosing multiple personality is missing time. Mm. 
for most of us, we don't miss time. We may have known we got triggered with something. We may have known we've had an emotional kind yeah. of episode there, but we don't miss time. We don't lose time usually. Yeah, I think, and I think you describe a case in your book where a person has done, goes through these periods, right, of having all kinds of events happening in their life and, well, just comes back and just doesn't know what happened in the last hour or, or so, right? And in those time, they have all kinds of interactions and um, there's a fully functioning personality there that's somehow disconnected from the, from the main personality. Yes, and... I worked with a lot of multiple personality clients, and this is the way it is. Different, in a sense, different personalities taken over. They got they got different voices, different emotional kind of tones. They've got different experiences, uh, and that's the part that is very different yeah. from uh, from ourselves, where we don't have that kind of dissociation. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> I was going to ask about, because you worked with hypnosis, that was your tool. Um, yes. So first of all, I guess maybe what is your understanding? How is it that hypnosis facilitates getting through to these different dimensions of a personality? And also how do you communicate? I, from memory, if I understood it right in the book, you, it sounds to me like a lot of the time people just communicated by finger signal or something, or did people actually talk to you? when they're in hypnosis? Well, there is a hypnotic technique called idiomotor response. It's at least 100 years old, maybe more. And it is the um, other examples are dowsing, uh, the pendulum where people use to communicate, the finger signals, uh, eye movement, there's different forms of this kind of idiomotor response in which a physical gesture or physical movement can respond to communication by another. I used idiomotor response with clients because it was a very quick way to bypass the conscious mind. If I'm doing hypnosis, somebody's in trance, and I'm attempting to communicate to the unconscious mind, but I'm forcing the conscious self to keep reporting to me about it. It's almost as if the conscious mind can get sort of confused or get involved or you start to get sort of colored responses. Idiomotor response allows you to move past the conscious mind quickly and communicate to the unconscious mind through signals. And the signals I used were fingers. Yes, no, stop, I don't know. And the issue there is you have to be able to know what kind of questions you're going yeah. to ask. Yeah. And I would say that's probably one of the huge issues about my work with Jared and what I call the protocols that were developed is how to ask and what questions to ask to move through blocks and to get information from the inner mind, whether that's subpersonalities or, as I think you would term it, extra physical entities, you would do it through the fingers. And I would communicate to spirit guides through the fingers. Now, there are people that I call 
uh, excellent trance subjects. And these are people who are able to enter trance to such a level that they can remain separate and allow the mind to communicate verbally. So I have worked with a number of clients who were excellent trance subjects, and they would they, I would communicate to their higher self verbally, I would communicate to the subpersonalities verbally, I would communicate to spirits verbally with those people. <clears throat> I always started, though, with the, uh, uh, the finger signals, and I would move to verbal once I understood my client was capable of that without influencing the responses. Once I was confident about that, it was much easier for me, mm. just like with Jared. Yeah, it would make easier. a much, much quicker communication <laughs> than finger signals and yes, no questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, I would say that the protocols that were developed can move through this material very quickly, but it took a long time to develop those and kind of streamline them. Mm. Uh, so that communication for me can go very quickly. Uh, but the verbal is always interesting because you always get more detail. You always get, get a fuller story. So it's, th those are nice experiences. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I was curious, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure whether that's a question that came out of your book. I'll just, as I was reading it, the trance states, sometimes when a subpersonality takes over, that can also be kind of experienced as a trance state, right? Or as a, um, it's perhaps a different kind of trance state from the hypnosis. I think that was my question. How do you see that? So, you know, like we, we, we might not have a loss of time, but we essentially go on autopilot without even noticing we're on autopilot, acting, responding in certain ways. Um, and then afterwards, if we reflect and if we were self-conscious enough, realize, hang on, there was just a part of me in charge that I actually wasn't fairly conscious of. So that, I, I, you know, that could be termed a trance state. Um, how would you compare that to the hypnotic trance well, state? Well, I, I tell every client when I begin, um, that we go in and out of trance all day long. Whether we're listening to music, whether we're involved in reading and working, very focused, whether we're watching a movie, uh, dream states. So these are very specific trance states when working with a client that you basically uh, help them move into trance. They're the ones who move into trance. We don't control them. Mm. They're in agreement to move into trance. And so I will lead them in, in an, a trance induction. It's just a relaxation. And help the conscious mind just to step aside. And when I begin communicating with the unconscious mind, you just find that the conscious self has moved into trance now. They've stepped aside. They may be paying attention to what I'm saying and go, what's going on over here or they may kind of be drifting off. But I would say that as soon as the, the uh, therapy starts, as soon as the trance starts, I'm communicating with other parts of the self at that point. Yeah. Um, Can, yeah. 
I just thought maybe I would add here uh, for the people listening that there are other parts of the self besides subpersonalities. And, and probably the most important one is the higher self. And the higher self is a part of ourselves that Jared said is created and projected into our present life by our soul. It's a soul creation. He said, it is not part of the physical body. And when we die, when the body dies, the higher self will continue on with the soul. So the higher self has a lot of information about present life, about our past lifetime history, about what's happening in the present. And if it doesn't have that information, it can retrieve it. So the higher self is an integral, central part of the healing process of soul-centered healing. And one of the things that's most important is that the higher self is a part of the light, which is our soul. We are beings of light. The higher self is a part of that light. It knows that it is the light. And it can bring that light to the subpersonalities. And that is a, basically a typical part of this healing process is to identify a subpersonality like the three-year-old we talked about. Yeah. And I would ask that three-year-old, are you willing to have some light love energy sent to you? And if it says yes, I will ask higher self, please send that light love energy to three-year-old. And three-year-old, lift the yes finger when you've received that. And the no finger if you do not. When I see that yes finger lift, and three-year-old has received that light, and I will ask it, does that feel all right to you? I get a yes all the time. Well, 99% yeah. of the time. Um, that three-year-old never wants to be without that light once it has felt it. And when it integrates, it, will, it has that light also. And that light is the, the direct connection to its soul. So that's part of the healing process is bringing light to that three-year-old. And it will now live in that light once it's mm. integrated. Uh, yeah, so that, that concept of the light is really fundamental to, to your book, right? You've got, on the one hand, the yeah. darkness and the light. And yeah. uh, these are not exactly concepts that I've I had not thought about things in that, exactly in, that, in those terms before. But what I, so I guess what I, um, so how I interpret that as I'm reading that, how I'm filtering that and kind of making sense of it is that the light represents that expansive connected state of consciousness that seems accessible to us often. It's often reported, I guess, when, when in through near death experiences, when people sort of see the light and go into the light or accounts of, very elevated extra physical dimensions where consciousness is really expansive and we have this full sense of our connectedness with all of creation. 
um, and that that is the kind of the, the, the energy, the frequency that, that translates as the light, whereas the darkness... Exactly. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, whereas the darkness um, seems to represent a kind of consciousness of disconnection and um, uh, lack, I suppose, like this, this, this sense of needing to create or needing to, to, to feed of others because there's, uh, there's an internal disconnect from its, our own source of light. Although I do, I mean, I, something is, I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating and so um, significant towards the end of your book how you I- explain how the two are needed and how dark, how the darkness, as it were, is essentially so fundamental to our growth. But uh, yeah, just let you respond to that, how I set that out. Yeah, first, I would kind of emphasize that the darkness is, is not the same thing as evil. Yeah. The darkness is not evil. But as Jared described darkness, it is the place without light love and knowledge he said in the darkness there is not trust so if you think about a child who's growing up say with one or two parents who are abusive who who are negligent and and the child just does not feel loved Mm. and that child grows up kind of afraid of the parents moods and that child we could say maybe living in darkness. The child's living in a place that lacks love, lacks light, lacks knowledge. And so that child is suffering in in that darkness. If he happens or she happens to have maybe a relationship with grandma, and grandma may be someone who can love this child, who, who really is attached, and the child becomes attached to grandma. That's an experience of light. That love is an experience of light that can connect with that child's own light. Because that child is still a being of light. It just may not, in a sense, be able to be fully in touch with it because of how the environment it has grown up in. That is, that is not to say that that's the way it happens with every child. Yeah. People are unique, absolutely. So I don't want to talk about any kind of this happens in general kind of thing. But that's an example that that might occur. Yeah. If somebody if somebody's an addicted to gambling, and their whole life has become caught up in gambling, one might see that as living in darkness. That they're, they're living a life that they just don't feel. You know, it's just almost kind of meaningless to them, and they're very, very addicted. That may be seen as living in a darkness. But the other issue is all of us in our life are coming to terms with light and darkness. We encounter that darkness. We experience that darkness and how we respond to that with our light. Uh, is going to make a lot of difference in terms of what we choose, where we go, how we grow. Um, So, yes, the interplay of light and darkness is happening in many levels from our 
personal day-to-day life, to our psychological life, also to our spiritual life. And Jared, of course, talks about light and dark as two primal forces. So at that primal level, these forces are operating, yes. And, um, you know, you talked about, uh, just then you gave the example of introducing the three-year-old to the light. Um, And that is became through through the higher self or the i think you also call it the inner self helper uh part that became a really powerful um and important part of your technique but sometimes those alter those alter egos or you know parts weren't open to that for a while what what sort of reasons you know are there when alters resist the light don't want to go there the um, biggest reasons, number one reason, is that if that three-year-old or other subpersonality accepts the light, the light will bring up its pain. Because you basically had a child that was kind of closed up holding the pain inside. If they receive the light, it's going to bring up that pain. And if the child begins to feel that, it shares in the soul's free choice. This is a point I forgot to make earlier. These, these subpersonalities, I view them as psychic beings. They're conscious, they're alive, but the thing is they live in a very kind of narrow reality. So the three-year-old may be living in that reality in which she was created, where mom's there and She just got slapped, and she's still living in that reality. But she is a real being. So when I'm communicating with her, I'm communicating with a real being. And she's afraid to bring in that light because when she starts to feel what's coming up, she thinks it's the light that's causing her pain. Right. So she'll stop it. Because the light requires an openness, right? Is that why the pain comes up? Because you have to open to your experience yes. and yeah. Exactly. And that's where my job comes in is to help the situation. So to make it safe for that child to receive the light. And there are all kinds of ways to do that. Um, I'll explain to the child what we're doing and why. I'll ask whether it's willing to receive just a tiny piece of light just to try it out. And it can stop it if it needs to, but if it likes it, it can bring more inside. That's one technique. Uh, Another one might be that um, there may be a spirit guide present. And I'll ask that three-year-old if she, or no, more likely I might ask three-year-old if she'll allow higher self to approach her. Higher self may approach in the form of a, a fairy godmother. Because higher self knows that's the presentation that the three-year-old will feel safe with. But in whatever way the higher self approaches, the three-year-old may say yes. She'll allow higher self to approach. And when she sees the fairy godmother, it signals to me that she sees the higher self. I'll ask her, will you allow her to hold your hand? So there's different ways to introduce the light. So it doesn't, in a sense, bring everything back. Um, Or 
the subpersonality may do some sharing with me about what happened. And once it's shared some, and, and kind of over the initial kind of fear, then she may be more willing to receive a piece of that light and then receive all the light. So that's, that's basically my job. The, the light does the healing. The light is what does the healing. My job is identifying obstacles or blocks that keep that light out. And whether that's a subpersonality that's afraid, whether it's an external thing that's intruding or blocking, yeah. whether it's a negative energy in the way, the issue is to resolve that so the light can come in. And I, and I, one of the things that you talk about is um, that a lot of the time those ego states form groups. And so it seemed to be that, that in, the obstacle sometimes could be that there was one ego state maybe particularly traumatized, um, and then there were other ego states that were kind of guarding or, or stopping access to that because it was um, too painful for the, for the person. Yeah, what usually happened, Kim, is that these subpersonalities, let's say the three-year-old, you know, was created out of rejection. Let's say it's seven years old. Um, the child had a very um, painful experience in school, maybe um, uh, got humiliated and felt like all the other kids didn't like her. Uh, so it was another rejection kind of experience. Maybe when she's 12 years old and kind of looking at having her first little boyfriend and, you know, something happens and uh, she's all disappointed, that may feel to her again like, like she's been rejected. If there were three subpersonalities created, one created in each of those incidents, at an inner level, those three may congregate together because they share a like experience. So subpersonalities can uh, form groups when they share a common theme, a common emotion, a common trauma situation. Something they share in common will bring them together. And, and now that you mention it, yeah, one of the issues is, let's say the 13-year-old got triggered. And so I'm working with a client and I find the 13-year-old, 13-year-old, shares, receives the light, but as she tries to share what happened to her at 13, all of a sudden she's blocked, and, and I can't get anything. I'll ask higher self to look inside and find who or what is stopping 13-year-old from sharing. Higher self will signal me that it's found someone or something. I find out it's the eight-year-old. So eight-year-old now we've got her receiving light and she may need to share. I would emphasize though, that when these groups are sharing, they do not have to share everything that's happened. That's true of, that's true of individual subpersonalities or groups. It's not that they have to share everything that occurred. It's not like they got to relive right. all of that trauma. What the, the higher self can help them determine how much needs to be shared in order to have that release. And it may just be one emotion, hmm. uh, or it may just be a piece of the trauma that happened. 
But with some of them, it does turn out that it's a pretty kind of video replay. It, it depends on the client and the situation. Yeah. But uh, if they're in a group, they don't have to, they don't all have to share everything. But what it, what it is that they share in common as a group is probably the piece that needs to be shared. And then for this case, it might be that feeling of being rejected. Mm. It may be a pretty deep, painful experience because they're all kind of sharing with it. But the client has help with that and then can have a release for the group. Yeah. And so how does this play out? Um in in the manifestations first of all in the moment so the clients are in hypnosis but will they cry will they have the emotional release and then yes. and then how does that you know what sort of shifts do clients report as a result of of this kind of work well they they're always um reporting relief um and and this is something that's also very important about this work is that it is what I consider experiential. That when I'm working with a client and I'm communicating with a subpersonality, because of my client's reactions or what they're voicing to me, I know that my client is feeling this subpersonality. They recognize that. Yeah. And they yeah. will start to remember. Even if they didn't remember up to that point, they'll know this is me. That experience is the reconnection to a part of themselves at a deep level. And so when that reconnection moves through the healing, the release, that's part of the, the client's experience is that relief. And what you've got is that those kind of releases accumulating. It's as if, it's as if the person's gathering parses themselves back. Mm. There's no more energy needed to keep that separate. Yeah. There's no more energy needed to keep the pain down. There's no more energy needed to avoid this and avoid that because those parts are, they're doing well now. Uh, so th that's the way I would say it. Yeah. Yeah. And that seems to be a theme that runs through all of these. This is the, the retrieval of energy as we go through the, the different layers at which you work, I find. So I would like to, to go to the past life factors now. And your book actually provided an answer to something that I've been wondering about for a long time. And that is what happens to these subpersonalities after death? Yeah. Because I had, um, I, you know, I've had the experience in myself in this life of experiencing subpersonalities that I knew were from past lives. And then while I don't have a, a clear recollection uh, I don't really have much of a recollection of the period between lifetimes. The, the, the literature, the, the reports that we get are very clear that many of us, certainly in that period between lifetimes, we don't deal with subpersonalities. We're in a very expansive state. We have a very high level yeah. of consciousness of everything. And so I was, I've been wondering, right, how do these subpersonalities pass through that phase and then resurface again when we're, here. And so you you found a, an answer to that. Yeah, for the, for the very reason you're bringing up. My my question to Jared was, we got all these subpersonalities. When these people die, why aren't they taken into the light, relieved of their trauma, and at one with the soul? And Jared said, 
that these subpersonalities, when when a person dies, the unresolved subpersonalities are still in pain or fear, or they could be angry, angry at God. And because they share in the soul's free choice, like I said before, they can refuse the light. As the soul's moving into the spirit realm of light, there can be parts of the self saying, "Uh -uh, I ain't going there. Because again, that light is bringing up its pain. So Jared said, what happens is that there is a pocket, this is how he described it, a sort of pocket within the soul. And these unresolved parts would be put in that pocket and protected against the light because their choice is not to have the light. So they're protected in that pocket. My own thinking is it's almost as if they're kind of in a sleep or a coma state while we are in the light in between lives doing what we do. He said, when that soul reincarnates, that karmic pocket will open up again as it gets close here into the reality in which most of these parts are created, the physical reality. It's almost as if they begin to feel that familiar energy or vibration again. So Jared says that pocket opens up and these parts can then become active. It's not like they all become active, uh, but these parts can become active and and some of them do become active Because like we talked about with groups, these past life parts share also similar kinds of emotions or traumas or situations as have happened in present life. Mm. And so those energies can connect. The present life experience might trigger the past life. Exactly. And then here they are, they're together. (laughs) Or the past life one comes roaring forward and blocks the one I'm working with, and all of a sudden I've got a past life part who's you know, wanting to shut me down or get away, and mm-hmm. so I have to work with them and, and explain to them what's happened. And interestingly enough, uh, the same kind of thing. you got to make it safe for them about what's happening. But higher self can bring that past life part to the present conscious mind and look out here into the present. And when it does, it understands now what's happened, that it is not in its own lifetime. It understands that this is a different person, it's a different part of the the soul. And so it gives that past life part perspective that whatever has happened, it's over now. That's in the past. That frees the past life part up to do things like receive the light, receive information, get information about integration. And Jared said, when that past life part does its sharing and its release, instead of integrating here in the present with the self, the higher self will take it within the soul to that lifetime in which it was part of, that there is a place there for it. He described it as kind of a pie with a piece missing he said that that past life one is the missing piece of pie that will be put back in right when when it has had release yeah it really you know when you think about it the, the way you're describing um these different levels at which it happens it i i keep 
noticing how conditioned I am to think of myself as a singular personality on a timeline where these things are all happening right now, right? But whereas when you talk about pockets that form when we go into the extra-physical dimension and then open up again and bits of us that get integrated in another piece of the time, um, it kind of forces us to start uh, envisaging the self as a very distinct from um, the physical being that we're aware of right now, right, that we're so identified with. Yeah, I think of that as ego consciousness. And that ego consciousness is very identified with the body, very identified with the personality, very identified with present time activity. Um, And, of course, people can become dominated by the ego consciousness, kind of believing that's all there is. Um, From my point of view, um, I, I believe when the body dies, when I cross over, it will be like moving through a door. And I also believe that at that point, Uh, if I'm ready, anybody who's ready, will, uh, in a sense, move into their own soul consciousness. And I liken it to the dreams that we've all had where we wake up and the dream is so real that it takes us a while to kind of reorient and realize that was just a dream. At At a kind of metaphorical next level, I believe we will move into that soul consciousness. We'll understand the life we just lived, but we will also have that greater perspective and understanding of ourselves as a soul with lifetimes. Um, I don't, that's not a consciousness I live in Yeah. right now. I have no question that that's, that's the consciousness I will move to. My understanding is people, when they die, will move to the spirit realm into a place or situation compatible with their beliefs and their expectations. So, yes, some people will see St. Peter at the gates, but that will only be temporary. They may live in that kind of mental existence for a while, but my understanding is they will then eventually, they will start to move out of that into that greater consciousness. So it's a very flexible individual kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but our ego consciousness is not our soul consciousness. That, that would be my point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, what you just outlined really um, is reflected by so many reports of people who've, you know, traveled out of body, for example, to different dimensions and by other communicators <clears throat> other than Jared, you know, extra physical consciousness that have communicated. Right. And so it very much, it very much corresponds to, to my expectations, understanding of, um, of how life will look like when we leave this physical dimension. And yeah. um, I guess the way I, I experience us here is, in a really compressed, as a really compressed, um, you know, restricted consciousness. So we can act, we can 
occasionally access what you call the higher self, this expansive state, this the part of us that knows why we're here and that sees the bigger picture and, and understands all those different karmic parts that we carry. But for the most part, we're not in that consciousness. We're um, kind of flying a bit blind. Well, I, I, I would want to say we all can access our higher self and we can all uh, be in cooperation and higher self can work with us. And it's not that the higher self is that soul consciousness, but it does have knowledge and it does have awareness. So for myself, I know that, that I'm in sync with my higher self and I, I call that intuition. Mm -hmm. When I work with clients, it is, it's almost finely tuned. And I'm getting, I'm getting things in my head and I'm getting questions come up that are kind of right on. I know that I'm working with higher self, my higher self in that. But I work, I, I see that every day is available to all of us. And there are ways people have to develop that kind of connection with higher self. And again, I've, I've had clients where the higher self will actually verbally communicate to them. Mm -hmm. Usually not. Most clients, that's not the case. Um, but the higher self is accessible and it does want to help. And uh, when I mentioned the pendulum uh, technique of, uh, are you familiar with that? The pendulum technique? I'm <clears throat> not, not really. I've never used it, but I think you say yes, yes or no questions and the pendulum responds one way or the other, right? Yeah. So a person sets up signals ahead of time and then they can continue to use the pendulum and know what they're, signals are yeah you can communicate to higher self through those signals um so the higher self is like an inner guide an inner source of information and a source of light but jared was very specific to say to me that the higher self is not a chooser we should not be asking higher self should i take this job should i move to that yeah. house the higher self does not choose. That is our job. And that's why we're here, to choose. We choose, we get the consequences, we get the karma. But it's in that choosing that we learn. And so we are the chooser. Higher self won't take that over, yeah. no matter how much we ask. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like... It's a bit like um... Jared not giving you answers that go too far ahead of time, right? The higher self doesn't say, oh, yeah, this is the path. Just do that and then do that, and then everything will work out just fine. It yeah. would kind of make everything pointless, right? <laughs> well, and that, that's, that's the point Jared made to me, is that we come into an incarnated physical life with what you're describing as that kind of narrow consciousness and he said that this is the realm, the physical is the realm in which the dark and light have an equal playing field. And it's that equal playing field that allows us to have a choice. That if we incarnated with our full soul consciousness, there'd be no sense to it. Yeah. We'd know exactly what we want to choose. <laughs> we want to go home and we go home. Yes, exactly. So, so yes, 
when we are incarnated and blocked from that full knowledge, we still can get in touch with that light. We can know that we are beings of light, but we are having to make choices and we're still growing. Yeah. So he said when, when a soul has lived a number of lifetimes and basically awakened to itself and its light, there won't be a need for that soul to return here. It will go on to other levels, which makes sense to me. Um, so uh, it's important that, that we not have the big picture. Yeah, exactly. And, and that we learn here. That's what gives this whole existence its its significance and its purpose. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And at the same time, being able to feel the love and the joy, the wonder, the curiosity, all those good things, uh, to have that experience also is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So much part of it. And it's in the contrast that makes it so much stronger i think it's in that contrast yeah. that makes the wonder and the awe and the the love gives it that much more significance now i was yeah. gonna i was gonna go back to the the past life um uh point again just briefly before we go into intrusive talk about intrusive consciousness intrusive spirits um with the past life i think one thing there's a there's an, a case study that you talk about um uh there's a couple of interesting examples, I think. Um, uh, and so one, we talked about how these, these, these past life alters can come up at different times, right? It seems that they get triggered at different times. And there was one case yeah. that you kind of refer to briefly, and I was actually curious how that played out, where um, there's a woman who uh, at her workplace um, starts becoming quite obsessed with a new boss and um, yeah. it's kind of like a compulsive, uh, almost like a compulsive behavior obsession around um, starting perhaps a relationship with this new boss. And I think the, the verdict of Jarrett was that there was twofold factors. There was both uh, extra physical presence that was influencing her, but also it was triggered because of a past life connection. So it was kind of quite a complex situation. Um, yeah, maybe just yes. talk about that a bit. Well, this woman's past life part is the part that was involved with this fella in a past life. Yeah. So here they are now in present life, and they meet, and again, she becomes an employee, and that connection then is going on uh, at that inner level, unbeknownst to her, probably not known to him, I'm not sure. Um, so while they're in this present reality, this thing is also going on about past life, and she begins to get pulled into kind of his energy. And uh, the, the ultimate thing, Jared felt that it was deep enough, and it did begin to involve evil elements. This fellow's need to control that his suggestion to her uh, through me was it would be better to step back from that relationship. Um, 
there was not going to be a clear way to resolve it because he was not going to be part of the solution. He was right. not going to be in healing. And uh, it would be pretty difficult for her to resolve it while still being every day with him and still her boss. And so that was his, that was his kind of uh, recommendation. Yeah. That she step back and move out of that kind of obsession. Yeah. Um, did that, did that, does that have played out? Do you know? Did she, with, did she step back or? When I last knew, yes. And whether it stayed that way, I would, I would guess it did, but I'm not sure. Once, yeah. once, um, but this is the kind of thing, Kim, that um, when we talked about uh, spirit, spirit attachment, I mean, these are individual unique stories, just like we have with our friends, family, fellow workers here in the present reality. These are very individual kind of situations. Yeah. Um, so again, in terms of my position as the healer, that was again, my job is to understand what the situation was so I could know how to bring light into the situation. Yeah. Um, so the same thing when these past life parts involved, very unique. You have to find out what's going on here. What's the deal? Mm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about spirit attachments. Yeah. I, I, um, again, your book kind of really helped me. Um, it added another dimension. So, um, for me, so in, in consensiology, when we talk about intrusion, um, there's kind of a, a standard line, which is every intrusion starts with self intrusion, you know, so to be open for intrusion, there has to be an openness within us that invites intrusion intrusion in and the way you're um the in, you know introducing the concept of the subpersonalities and the alters as the gateways often not always but as the gateways at times for intrusions <coughs> really added a new element to my understanding because that whole concept that um, it can be the subpersonality that essentially agrees to uh, allow an extra physical consciousness in and give it access is a really key part. So um, I'd be keen for you to explain that and what your understanding uh, was around that. Yes, it's a, it's a very key part. Going back to what you had referred to earlier in terms of the uh, later part of my book, the agreement yeah. between darkness and light. And Jared's communication to me from very early on is that every soul is absolutely free. That free choice, that free will is absolute. And we all have that absolute free will. So what he's saying is that when spirits attempt to attach or intrude, or interfere with a person in the physical, they have to have some kind of permission. And that permission is not necessarily going up to the ego state or the subpersonality and saying, can I uh, come in here? Um, the three-year-old little girl we talked about, subpersonality. If a spirit uh, uh, finds her, 
he may offer her a doll. And if that little girl, that little personality says yes to that doll and takes that doll, that's a permission. So the thing about intrusions and attachments is they are permissions, but they're kind of backdoor permissions. Mm -hmm. They're kind of trickster permissions. And I think in the book, I talk about the little guy, 12 years old, a spirit gave him a pocket knife. Yeah. And he carried that knife for protection because of what had happened in his trauma. The spirit knew about that trauma and gave him the knife uh, saying, here, this, you can use this to protect yourself. When I found that little 12-year-old personality, he did not want to give that knife up. And as long as he didn't want to give the knife up, it remained an access, an opening to that spirit. And so I had, again, to work with the, the child and find a way for him to hand over that knife and let higher self dispose of it. Did, did you I know thought, what the knife represented? Had you worked that out? Yes. Uh, um, by that time, I was pretty used to devices. And uh, and there's all kinds of devices that, that these outside souls can, can, can place inside or, right. or get someone to accept. Um, so to resolve it for this little guy, uh, I asked him if he would be willing to receive a, a new knife from a spirit helper and then give over the knife he had there. But as we worked it out, he finally, he did agree to that. And he had, he gave higher self that negative knife, which was disposed of, and that closed the access. And at that point, that outside spirit could no longer access him. It was closed off. So uh, that kind of permission issue is very important, but it's not like those permissions are being given consciously. Yeah. It's often deception and catching a child in the trauma right at the moment of trauma. It, it's, you know, it's just exploiting. Yeah. Uh, they do. And it, But it also means that as long as we... Um, don't take care of those traumatized parts and our wounded parts. Um, that is what keeps us open to these kinds of uh, intrusive presences, isn't it? Yes. It not only keeps us open to our own pain because it can still get triggered and, yeah. you know, we live with confusion or whatever, but then it also, yes, it can be an opening. Yeah. Uh, an outside one. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you talk about different categories of um, these extra-physical consciousnesses. You uh, have talked about earthbound, low-lying, and then evil spirits. And um, from memory, earthbound are really often, it's a slightly different category from what we just talked about in that it might be uh, uh, someone who's close to us, uh, maybe our partner or someone, a child or someone who's, who's died um, around us uh, or I guess maybe not close to us, but somehow feels a link to us who just hangs around and, and influences us perhaps in a more um, kind of in a more obvious way than this backhanded sneaky way that you're talking about <laughs> with the pen knife, right? 
Um, but yet the openness again, and I think you make that point. Um, if we are still attached, so say if our spouse died and we remain attached to to our spouse um, or our child, we're also constantly uh, bringing them in, invoking them, yeah, involving that, um, maintaining that connection. Yes, we can be calling back those loved ones because we're having a difficult time letting go or, or because of the grief, which, which at one hand certainly is understandable. But again, that's part of the limit, I think, of our Western culture is we don't understand, we don't accept that uh, the spirit realm is there for all of us. When we let go of the body, that's the be very best place for us to move to. And we will connect again with our loved ones. But it's, <laughs> it's one of those things where, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say my, my wife and I, for example, have had more than one lifetime together. When we move to spirit realm, it's not that we're going to, we can still relate as these personalities, but more likely we're going to be relating in our soul consciousness mm. and have that understanding. And, and that's how I think about others too, that our loved ones, I would say most often our intimates, our loved ones, those we're close to, we've had lifetimes with them. Yeah. And so, and it, it, some people just find that they, in our culture, they can't believe it. But if I would say, hey, you're, you're going to see them again, you're, you'll be with them. That, that's hard for them to really trust. Um, but when you talk about the near-death experience and the research that has been done in the near-death experience and the knowledge that comes to these people when they receive that light, and they, they understand that about the wife they have, the husband, the children. The, they, they have this greater understanding about their life, at least until they come back. Um, I think that's, that's, that's the way it is. When we leave the body, move to the spirit realm, there will be many there that we recognize. We, we've had a lot of soul, soul experience together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, and so then we have the you know, another important distinction that you make are uh, found in your is is that between spirits that attach and spirits that inhabit. Yes. So there's kind of different categories of intrusion. So maybe talk about that as well. An attachment is almost thinking about it in terms of present reality. Like when you talk about a husband or wife that dies and may attempt to stay with the husband yeah. and wife still alive, they attach. Um, and that kind of spirit could move around the family, could visit their, their husband who's still alive, could visit a couple of the children that are still alive. And they're attached in the sense that they still reference this physical present reality. Um, they, they, some of them still believe they're in the physical reality. They're not aware their body has died. Mm -hmm. Some of them have attached to a place, which we call haunting. Yeah. 
because that place was so important to them. Or they were so frightened at death, they clung to this place that they knew so well, and they stayed there. So that attachment is kind of a reference still in the present reality. When a spirit enters one's soul, this is where that kind of thinking about a unifying identity, if you think about ourselves with the aura, you know, the egg shape, if you look at that aura, almost as infinite space as the soul's infinite space, and an outside spirit enters into that aura, doesn't attach to the person in terms of their day-to-day life and what's going on, but they enter into that aura. There's a whole lot of things that can be going on there because that's entering into soul-level reality. And when they enter into that, they may find past lives. Uh, They may be able to do things, engage at that level where the conscious personality has no awareness of it. Yeah. So it's, in in my mind, it's a little more serious situation. Yeah. Uh, And it's not that these parts all are trying to do harm. They're not all necessarily out to do harm. They may be curious. They may have just tumbled into this and now they're present within the person's energy. So again, unique individual case by case, what's going on here. And some of them, they're easy to work with. They know what's happened now and they leave. Others, they went in and they want to stay in. They kind of feel like they have uh, uh, kind of taken over some territory for themselves and they don't want you throwing them out. Yeah. Which is one, if I'm working with a client and I get very blocked, it's very possible that an, a spirit that has entered is trying to block me because they know if I find this one, this part of the self, they're going to get booted. Yeah. So they may try to stop my work with the client. So inhabiting is, is a more serious situation uh, just because it's deeper. Uh, it can go in a lot of ways. It's it's a lot freer to move uh, in that vast kind of soul energy mm. as opposed to the attached spirit. Yeah, and it's not quite like possession in the sense that the person uh, in a possession state, a person is the full body is taken over, right, by a, a, an extra physical consciousness. But the way I interpret the inhabiting, uh, there can be a real blending so you might act and say things and do things without any awareness that you're being influenced, not by your own personality parts, but by an extra physical consciousness that is controlling yeah. things. I had a woman, um, she was about maybe 28 when I worked with her. And at around age 15, 16, she witnessed an automobile accident in which a person was killed. She was standing across the street. She was the first person I believe that that spirit saw and could relate to in, you know, in that death experience, in that confusion, she saw my client and she attached to her, didn't enter her, but attached to her because she was there. 
Um, and she was human. <laughs> she was she was somebody. Mm. Uh, so it happens in a lot of ways that there's a connection. Um, again, same emotion or same situation or something that is familiar to the spirit. And if it gets that permission, if it gets that connection, um, it can make the attachment or even enter. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point that you make, right? Because um, that example is one of those almost um, coincidental. You know, your client happened to be there when the death happened and the consciousness yes. just went <clears throat> for whatever reason, felt drawn to her because she was there. And then in other cases, um, there might be these extended karmic links, right, that we talked about already where, um, like, you know, the case that I talk about in, in my book where I had this sense that I'd been bringing these consciousnesses with me across lifetimes. They'd been yeah. attached to me and, and more than attached, right? They were more, I think, more of this inhabiting because there was a real blending um, uh, of them within me until I finally cleared uh, cleared that particular consciousness and ex experienced it almost like a near-death experience, sort of at a not, not quite as extreme, right, but there was a whole sense of this part going to the light and me, I'd, I'd passed out and, and having this vision. Okay, yes, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these spirits, they're either afraid of the light or something was happening like with this accident situation where they lost sight of the light because of what happened. A lot of them, once they are taught to, to see the light or to look at the light or let it connect, they're gone. I, I mean, it's, it's the spirit realm of light is a much, much better place to be. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's one of my arguments when I get a spirit who's quite reluctant is, uh, man, you don't know what you're missing out on here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, you're offering them, you're offering them such a, such a beautiful thing mm. uh, that that's, that's rewarding too. Yeah. It, it's a payoff for my client, but it's also a payoff for yeah. the spirit who's been lost. Yeah. And, and, you know, the sense I get from your book is that the vast majority um do what once they get that point they will go they will go there'll be a release they'll be drawn to that um to that expansive perspective but then yes. but then there are what i think you call evil spirits right and so there's that distinction between the darkness and evil um and uh, the evil spirits if i understand it rightly are really those that um seek to uh, impose uh, their will over others against another person's will. So they're not respecting free choice. They're not respecting will. And it also sounds like they really don't are interested in going to the light or anything to do with the light. They are interested in dragging others towards the darkness because there is some benefit of being in a communal kind of mob for them. Yeah, now, now this is a big subject, but um, there there are spirits be, because of what occurred to them in their life, and maybe over lifetimes, were eventually pulled into darkness, either by their own temptations, 
Uh, and when the body dies for this person, they do not go to the light. They move into darkness because that's basically where they've been living while incarnated. Um, and once they move into the darkness, they become very vulnerable to those very dark souls that kind of know what the deal is and what's going on. Those very dark souls, there are, there are two things that they seem to want most of all. They want to gather, in a sense, uh, soldiers for their army, the legions that the good book talks about, or they want to um, establish, I, I usually think about it as, as a corral. They want to gather souls that they can siphon energy from. And so they will gather connections to souls, not to bring them into the darkness, but when those souls die, go to the light, and they reincarnate, these dark souls have strategies and techniques to search out the souls they've had connection with before, and then carry on with that connection and get these people again uh, connected to that darkness. In that case, the very dark souls are siphoning their light. As Jared had said, these dark souls are still souls of light. They still have light within them. It may be so covered over and so forgotten by these souls, but it is still there. And they need light to continue to exist. So Jared called us humans in the physical, stepped down light energy. These souls won't go to the light and they, they can't go to the light directly and get that light for themselves, but they can have strategies and techniques to siphon that, connect with and then siphon that light from us humans. And so those are the two things. They'll get their kind of army gathered bring souls into the darkness, in a sense, control them, threaten them, um, offer them things. Uh, or they'll kind of start to cultivate these connections with other souls that they can use for energy as they reincarnate. Mm. So th those are the two big things. There, there's some more stuff, but those are the two yeah. big ones. And when you um, talk about them obtaining energy, essentially light, right, light energy through us. I, I guess what comes to mind for me is that, um, you know, intrusive consciousnesses often seem to thrive, and this is actually applies to whether they're in the physical body, because they can be, or in the extra-physical body. They seem to thrive on intense emotions, things like upsetness, fear, anger, um, so as you're describing it as a, you know, kind of a, an access to the light, I'm wondering whether it is through those emotional energies, even though they're not, they're not emotions that, you know, we would think of this is light energy because it's kind of, yeah. but it's actually through that further densified version, I guess, um, that those consciousnesses obtain 
the energy that they seem to need. And once they connect to that powerful emotion and they enter into that person's energy, they can find other sources of light within that person. Yeah. Other than negative emotion. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of like that negative emotion may be their entree, but then they have other ways to try to kind of move deeper inside. And there are, there are a number of situations that I describe as infestations. They, they continue to work to make more connections within the person by their presence. That's part of what they will cultivate. So when a person comes back, reincarnates, if they've been accessed by this, let's say one dark soul, if they've been accessed by that dark soul over a number of lifetimes, and that dark soul has cultivated a kind of interconnection or web, it becomes very difficult to disentangle that with a client. Mm -hmm. And what you have to do is track down every subpersonality or device that that soul, that dark one has put inside. You have to track those down and basically close all the, all the doors. Once those doors are closed, that dark soul will not be able to stay. It has to have a permission, and you've closed all permissions. It will, the higher self and guides then will remove it. But it can be pretty complex. It sounds like entangled. a very complex extraction exercise. Yes. And, and that's, not, that's not necessarily everybody. <laughs> it's not the norm, but it, there's a number of cases where that's happened hmm. over lifetimes. Um, and it just, you just have to kind of stay with it and uh, search out every opening until it's gone. Yeah. Um, I do engage those dark souls when I find them. If I find that there's such a web, I will have higher self and guides find the dark soul who's running that. And I will communicate with them. My first attempt is to communicate with them, remind them that they're a being of light and they're angry with God or they're afraid of punishment or they're afraid of hell or whatever it is. I often can help them understand what's happened. And what I will do in that case um, two strategies to work with these these separate ones. They can either find their own light inside if they're willing to look. And again, many aren't willing to look at first. You have to kind of make it safe for them. Or they can give permission for a high-level teacher from the light to come forward and communicate to them information. So I will try one of those strategies or both if that dark soul is absolutely entrenched, there's just no, no way forward with it. Then we'll start closing doors just to get rid of it. All right. Just dream. It's, it's much easier if I can engage it and teach it what's happened and that it's got a much better place to be. That's yeah. a lot easier. But if you have to, then you go through and find the doors. Yeah. 
And I was curious, um, actually, when you talked about having these interactions with these really entrenched um, intruders, uh, you, you, you mentioned a few times in your book that, you know, you're not a clairvoyant and you're really just approaching this very clinically and, and so on. But do you experience uh, energetic phenomena or the presences? Uh, I imagine sometimes these interactions can be quite intense, right? You're dealing with very angry, um, hostile individuals yes. at times. How does that have you, does that leave repercussions for you, these sort of interactions? Uh, there's not really repercussions ongoing. I'm experiencing that in the session. Yeah. Um, I I very much pick up on the kind of entity I'm engaged with. Uh, but I would say that, um, you know, I learned uh, pretty early. I just keep my cool because I know where I'm at. And I know what I'm offering this spirit. And I know that there's things in their way that I just need to figure out for them. And so I don't feel threatened myself. They do attempt to threaten the subpersonalities because they don't want the subpersonalities to receive light or close the doors. Yeah. So they, they will threaten them. And I have to, as part of closing doors, I have to reassure the subpersonalities that these dark ones do not have the power they say they do. Mm. And, and I will show them that by helping the subpersonality receive the light. And there are cases where I will say to the subpersonality who's still afraid, I'll say that you receive that light. Now, what I want you to do when I count to three, I just want you to take your hand and point and send some light. <clears throat> to that spirit and see what happens. And so the subpersonality will do that and that dark soul will back off. So that that convinces that subpersonality that, hey, this this maybe isn't as powerful as I thought. So the, that's probably one of the things over the years. I just learned a lot of techniques and strategies to kind of get people to get these spirits or get the subpersonalities to kind of open up and, and entertain a possibility here. Yeah. That they got a much better choice. Yeah. So it's just, it's just kind of learning those strategies, what to use. Have you, uh, do you share, do you share those strategies? I was going to ask you like, how has your work been taken um, among your peers? Uh, you know, it's obviously quite fringe in terms of, general clinical psychology and hypnotherapy. But, um, you know, have you been able to share this, uh, uh, your techniques and so on with, with other practitioners? Uh, well, the first thing is the, uh, my second and third book, uh, The Practice of Soul-Centered Healing, I do put the protocols and strategies in there. Not all of them, of course. But anybody who clicks into this kind of work, they'll develop some yeah. of the strategy. They'll get to know how. But I, uh, I've written out as much as I can of those protocols, what questions to ask, in what order, what you're trying to accomplish. As far as training, Kim, I, um, you know, I worked with Jared for 15 years. I spent 15 years writing these three books. And now I'm in my last 15 years, or however long. Um, 
And this is when I'm bringing my work into the public. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons we're talking now. Yeah. Um, I uh, began an interview with Skeptico with Alex. I think you saw that. Maybe. Yeah, that's what got me onto your work. Well, that was, that was my decision to begin taking the work into the public. I've, I've taken in public around here. A lot of practitioners are aware of the work, but I've not taken it really into the public. So there are a number of practitioners whom I, who I'm in communication with, but I've not done specific training yet. And that's what I'm going to be starting. I'm going to um, put together uh, consultant training groups small groups mm -hmm. with, a, with a focus on practice, yeah, clinical practice. Um, I mean, that's what this is all about, is bringing this to people who can also then also do that yeah. healing work. Yeah. Uh, so I do hope to start that. I'm hoping to make that first announcement within the next week or so. Um, but all that will go on my website. Okay. Uh, but, but that's where I'm at right now. I'm going to train as much as I can. Um, I'm, like I said, I have these uh, 700. All my sessions with Jared have been transcribed. Mm -hmm. So all of that is uh, uh, digitally going to be available in some way at some point. Right. That will be a great seven, resource. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh, it seems that Jared was uh, – quite a, um, uh, let's say quite an evolved consciousness. Um, you know, I've, I've seen range of and experienced a range of channel communications and they can be of quite mixed quality. And, um, <laughs> the, the pieces that are in your book certainly suggest that he was, um, someone who knew a lot. Did you, did you establish, you know, there was some kind of link uh, I guess maybe we can we can end on that topic, the agreement topic, right? It's such a it's such an important piece towards the end of your book. You know, we have agreements with the consciousnesses that are intrusive to us, but we also have agreements with the people that we have in our life, the people that we have major life experiences with, agreements that we don't recall because they happened at the soul level. Yes. Did you come to a view that you had an agreement with Jared to do this work? And um, are you aware of your link to him? Well, I, I would say in general first, Jared said, when a soul incarnates, it comes into the life with a blueprint. And that blueprint is worked out before the life begins. And he said it's worked out usually with teachers and guides. Uh, so when we come in to our incarnation, we have a blueprint. As Jared said, once we're incarnate, the conscious self is making soul choices and does not have to go with the blueprint. So it's not like you're caught into some kind yeah. of predestination. You can go way off the reservation. Um, but to answer your question, Matt, yes, this was part of my blueprint to work with Jared and Catherine. And I would share this. Um, Catherine and I do not have a past life history. We never shared a past life, which struck me as unusual when I first began to understand this. 
but I came to believe that we do not share any past life uh, experience together because it allows for a cleaner connection between Catherine and Jared and myself. Catherine and I did not have to deal with kind of past life baggage. Kind of or, baggage, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and that's unusual for me to find out I did not have past life history with someone I'm very close with. Oh. Uh, but I think that was the reason. It was being kept very clear for us. And Catherine was a beautiful channel, very clear. Jared was very, very clear, his communication to me. Uh, and to go back to your earlier comment, I believe, yes, Jared was an extremely high-level guide. His, his source of information just blew my mind so many times. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, this was a gift for my life. Uh, none of this would have happened without Jared's information. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And do you know if you had past lives together with him? Uh, I, yes, we've had past life connection, but not that I am aware of a of a specific. Right. Um, the other thing is, as Jared talked about, at his level, he can project his consciousness in many directions at once. For Catherine and myself and my work here, he's gone by Jared. Yeah. But as he says, he, he can project his consciousness in many directions. So at that level, it, it's, it's kind of beyond our comprehension. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Until yeah. we get over there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, look, I think that's a really good, good um, point to end. I might end with a quote um, towards the, from the end of your book that I really liked. Um, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. You are quoting, uh, sorry, I'll start. You're quoting Tyler de Chardin. We are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience, which is a, quite a common quote. And then you say, I think that when we shift to the new paradigm, this view will be accepted as fact, that we're all spiritual beings, souls incarnate. There are no Muslim souls, Jewish souls, or Christian souls. There are no American souls or French souls or democratic or Republican souls. Very relevant right now, I think, yeah. in your country. There are only souls. The new paradigm, I believe, will recognize that our human nature is a spiritual nature. This recognition at a cultural level will mark a turning point, I think, in our shift to a new point of view. At that point, we will also accept at some level that we are all brothers and sisters in the light and that we do not and that what we do to one another or for one another, we do to and for ourselves. This step will include a collective recognition that we are part of an all-encompassing transcendent reality. And um, I think your book and your work certainly is a great contribution to helping us move in that direction. Well, that's certainly my hope, and uh, I believe there's a lot of us that are working together toward that. Yeah. Uh, as far as I know, with all the crises happening, especially here in this country, for all I know, this pandemic and what it's done may create some opening. I, I, I hope it does for to help us rethink and refeel 
uh, and reimagine who we are, where we're at. I hope so. But. Yeah, I'll share that hope. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you. It was a real pleasure um, and privilege to to explore your work with you. Well, you're welcome, Kim. It was very good to meet you, and I'll finish up on your book as well. And uh, wishing you the very best in, in terms of your endeavors too. Yeah. Uh, we're in it together. <laughs> I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies. <laughs>